hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 and reading verses 21 to 23. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. If the prophet Isaiah had uh, stopped his writings at uh, chapter 44 and verse 20, all of us would be in a terrible way because, as you know, the passage was a terrifying indictment of idolatry and unregenerate man is an idle factory. But... The prophet does not stop there. He begins in verse 21 with a great reminder that while God judges, his judgments are terrifying, he acts in great mercy and kindness uh, to restore and to forgive and to save his people. So we turn again from the terrifying words of the judgment of God upon an idolatry to a God who intervenes to save his people and to restore them. And there is in our text a a promise of uh, salvation that engages uh, a restoration of the nation uh, that is to be purposeful, uh, found in verse 21, and then uh, the foundation of that purposefulness in forgiveness, and then finally, uh, verses 23, in light of forgiveness, uh, the creation uh, erupts in the praise of God. Uh, Let's begin with a restoration to purpose. Uh, God is... uh, going to recover, of course, the nation out of Babylon. Uh, They haven't gone into captivity yet, but they will. And in captivity, they have the sure and certain hope that God uh, will restore them to the original purpose for which the nation was created. The text begins with an imperative to remember these things. It's either a reference to the previous context, namely judgment on the idolater, or what follows I prefer uh, the latter. Uh, what are we to remember? Uh, again, there follows uh, content of what we are to remember. Uh, I pause here momentarily to remind you uh, that forgetfulness is a very serious disease with grave consequences in the Christian faith. Uh, it's, it's something that's found over and over again in the Bible. Uh, certainly the nation of Israel would be uh, remarkably acquainted with the danger of forgetfulness. Uh, For example, Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, and verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. It's an indictment. There's terrible diseases called forgetfulness. We forget God. And whoever forgets God is going uh, to be found in a very bad way. Illustration of this, uh, an article I recently read about our high school students. 
uh, high school students, many of them, not all of them to be sure, but many of them grow up in churches. When they graduate from high school and leave home, they leave something else. What do they leave? They leave the church. That's a bad way because that's to forget God. Whoever forgets God is going to be found in a very bad way. Tragedy of uh, people who profess the Christian faith. Eventually they will end up uh, on the rocks of, uh, of forgetfulness and their faith will become shipwrecked. And so we are commanded, again, are we not to remember God? Uh, there is a uh, sermon uh, on this uh, very fact uh, preached by our Lord. It's a sermon of uh, three words. It's a rejoinder, if you will, a counter to forgetfulness. It's found in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Because she leaves the city in haste, but she disobeys God and forgets his word. She was not to turn back, and she turns back, and in a moment, her faith was exposed as false because she forgot God and his word. Permit me some speculation. What did she turn back for? Oh, I forgot the sterling. Oh, my mother's china given to me at my wedding. I don't know. But she turned back and instantaneously judgment fell upon her. Reminder of the high price to be paid when you forget the word of God. When you forget the importance of the means of grace, like partaking of the sacraments and the hearing of the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, you set your path upon the path of forgetfulness. And I simply give you the three words of our Lord, remember Lot's wife. The content or the reason to remember found in our text, uh, you are my servant. The statement of their commission. And again, as a Christian, if you begin to forget your commission, before long you will find yourself in a very bad way. That God makes us servants, not lords, he makes us servants. It is a reminder in the text that there is no change of the original commission. God doesn't grade on the curve. He called them to be his servants. They forgot to be his servants, and so they're going into the Babylonian captivity. He's reminding them here that they are to serve him and him alone. It's a critical element of our faith that we are servants of, of the Most High God. Regardless of your circumstances in life, we're the servants of God. So implicit reminder, of course, not to serve idols, but uh, I simply remind you from one epistle, a church at Philippi, Paul identifies himself as the servant of God. Paul was an apostle, but he calls himself a servant of God. We read, of course, as you know, Philippians chapter 2, that uh, the Lord high God, Jesus Christ, left his heavenly environment set aside the voluntary use of his attributes, left the worship of the angels from time immemorial, and he became what? He became a servant. First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 16, your commission as a Christian uh, 
Grace Bible Church. You're not to use your your freedom uh, uh, to promote, of course, sin, but uh, as a servant of God. That is our commission as a servant of God. Uh, It is a commission that is repeated in the text, restates the commission of the nation. I formed you, the act is purposeful, you are my servant. So you align yourself with call. You align yourself with what the scripture tells you that you are to do. You serve in the way that God has gifted you, however that might be. You serve, of course, by remembering and stoking the church to remember the Lord God's great acts of mercy. I had the privilege of uh, going to Europe this this summer and reminded uh, the incredible tragedy of the Second World War, uh, how nations were shoved into war, perilous times, uh, incredible death and destruction. Uh, But there were a few countries, as you know, that were neutral, non-aligned, that that phrase non-aligned or neutral doesn't apply to the Christian. We are the servants of God. We're to serve him. However he has gifted us, the time that he has allotted to us, with everything that he gives to us, we're to serve him. We are, uh, we are uh, not neutral as Christians. That is our commission. Israel forgot that. They began to serve idols. And the moment they began to serve idols, they marked themselves again for the captivity of Babylon. There's an illustration of this in uh, Romans, uh, pardon me, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Uh, John says of the church of Jesus Christ that they were purchased. He bought the church with his blood. He purchased it to be priests, king priests. That's our commission at Grace Bible Church. We're the priests of God. Uh, We have something of a distinction in that regard, Grace Bible Church, because uh, we don't have a special priestly class. Everyone uh, who names the name of the Lord in Grace Bible Church is a priest. In fact, uh, we don't have to engage in the arguments of so many churches uh, in Grace Bible Church like, uh, do women serve as priests? Because the answer is yes. Once you're redeemed, you're a priest regardless uh, of your age, male or female. Yes, indeed. Grace Bible Church, women are priests. We all serve God. Uh, By the way, that metaphor is compounded in the New Testament because we're not only the priests of the Most High God, we're his temple, his end-time temple, advancing his kingdom as we serve him even at the expense of our own perhaps happiness or pleasure or financial condition, uh, we're the priests of the Most High God. It's an allusion, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, is an allusion to the commissioning of Israel in Exodus 19.6. In fact, it's just that. The nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, they checked out of that and eventually were led away into captivity and utter destruction 
climaxing in my own view with uh, Titus and his Roman legions. But let us not forget our commission uh, by God uh, to be his priests and to serve him. And if there are places uh, that you, you could go or literature that you could read or television programs that you could watch that you cannot do so in good conscience as a priest of God, then let it go. It's not worth it. Serve him uh, in light of who he is. So God is reclaiming them with his original purpose. He hasn't changed it. He says, well, uh, you, you flunked the first time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dumb it down. No, the original purpose is, again, brought before the nation, and that is what they are to be. Uh, there is no change in their commissioning, meaning that he is not finished with them. And, of course, I remind you that God is not finished with, uh, with any of us. He continues to work uh, to advance his program in our own lives. Uh, the promise uh, then breaks like a thunderclap in light of the commissioning. Uh, because I don't, I don't know if you're like me. You ever read your job description, you get terrified. Oh my gosh, I'm flunking all of these. I didn't do this very well. I got a C minus in this. I got a D in this. And you get all wrapped around the axle. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm flunking. I'm not a very good priest. But the promise breaks upon them as it always does. Whenever God commissions his people, he reminds them of his presence to be with them. Here it breaks in the language, uh, reminding them of that in a remarkable way. You will not be forgotten by me. Gives us all hope, does it not, as we desire to serve the Lord? Because uh, God deals with us in grace and mercy. And, and so he does here. Not be forgotten by me. Reminded of this in a very powerful way. Yesterday I went to a funeral service. Uh, to remember a fallen comrade, colleague, Christian that I did not know very well. Uh, but nonetheless, I had met her and uh, engaged her very briefly in some conversation. But, uh, so I went to remember. The, uh, the reverend lady officiating the service uh, uh, commenced to remind me that uh, the dearly departed had pancreatic cancer and caught God by surprise. Oh my, caught God by surprise. I got to thinking about process theology and the danger that's entered the church in light of that folly, but okay, maybe I should listen all the sharper. Uh, God had no control whatsoever on the cancer. Oh my, oh my. In other words, there is an independent power that exists in the world of which God does not control in his ultimate sense of the word. I understand that he doesn't immediately cause cancer. We can go all the way back to the fall of Adam to trace why it exists, why thorns exist, why storms exist, why every disease exists because of the judgment of the fall. Why would I worship a God? who had to be educated by my diseases and if who uh, 
could not intervene, I would give him less than full glorious worship and service. We worship a God who's sovereign over everything, the worst of diseases, the worst of times, the worst of events, even the Babylonian captivity and all that it meant to the nation. That God is king, supreme, rules over everything and everyone. Uh, he cannot forget because he knows all things actual and possible in one eternal moment. And that's the hope of the Christian when we contract cancer or get in car wrecks or whatever the case might be that our God is at work in every event because he is sovereign and nothing happens to us uh, because we are our sons uh, that are not part of his loving purposes to advance his glory and to fit us out for all eternity. That is a God to be served. And that, of course, is what the prophet is reminding uh, Israel of, the majesty of the God that they serve, that they will not be forgotten. Of course, it's a startling promise of God because who's done the forgetting? They have. They've forgotten God and served idols, manufactured them out of wood or metal or whatever the case might be, or bought into some folly idea that's taught at a university uh, that uh, belies that there's any God whatsoever, as if we are here by time and chance. But God remembers them, and that's a, that's a reason to remember God. A conceptual illusion, I think, to Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, verse 6. Again, Israel uh, should have known the majesty of God in the provision of God, in the presence of God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Ultimately, a commission that goes to Joshua is to go into the land. And God didn't forget them, and neither did he forsake them. It thunderclaps in the book of Hebrews. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you know the theology of that book, they are thinking about forsaking God and leaving the church. And the thunderclap of the majesty of God breaks upon them in the author the promise of God, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, that you could never ever find yourself in a position that God wouldn't know exactly where you were, and if he so desired, he could marshal whatever force he wanted to to rescue you. And whatever is the outcome is for your glory and for his purposes, even though the appearance is perhaps otherwise. Why we're the children of hope. God makes no mistakes. That God cannot and does not forget his sons. If he could, he would not be God. Something of a remarkable, I think, a very beautiful reminder of this uh, in the Psalter, uh, in particular Psalm uh, 139. David says in verse 2, you know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. 
and are intimately acquainted with me in all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Verse 7 and 8, where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. We are the sons of God. His love is stamped upon us. We could never flee his presence. And because of his presence, really and finally and totally, we could never ever forget him in light of the work of regeneration. Very fond of reading to my aged mother, 23rd Psalm. Verses that are familiar with you, I'm sure, particularly the final two verses. God, of course, as you know in the psalm, is the great shepherd king, his people leading them. But I love how the text ends, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Those are the attributes of God that are behind his people. He leads them from the front, and he follows them from behind. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when you're good and depressed like I am on any given day, well, God's forgotten me. Read Psalm 139. And the text will recover you. And you will resurrect the embers of your heart. God will never leave us or forsake us. That all of his purposes for us are divine to advance his glorious kingdom in our heart and in the world in which we live. So the nation, the grace of God is being restored to purpose, to serve God. They are to come out of Babylon it's the servants of God. You and I, as Christians, are to come out of our regeneration uh, with this purpose to serve God. Because that is what we are, and that is why God made us, to serve him. Uh, there follows in the next verse uh, this great calling uh, to a great promise, verse 22. Uh, the proof of the fact that God cannot forget them is what God has done for them in the reality of redemption and forgiveness. The parallelism is strikingly beautiful. I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Now, we have seen this word wipe out before uh, very quickly, uh, chapter 43 and verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Like God gets the delete key. And they're gone. In other words, uh, the liability is gone forever. Uh, speaks the totality of forgiveness. A reminder to us in a very beautiful way of the execution of uh, the new covenant, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34. For I will forgive your iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. That's even more remarkable in light of the fact that you and I, even though redeemed, are still depraved and still sin. 
but God treats us as if he has forgotten the liability of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Remarkable turn of the grace of God for his people. So remarkable that to me this is one of the greatest words in all of scripture and all of life. How would you like to go through life forever guilty? Will Christians go through life forever forgiven as the sons of God? And you cannot underestimate this, the foundation of our sonship. There was once a barrier, and God has removed it and granted full pardon. It's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's table, symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but in him we have full pardon, full pardon. I love the hymn, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Only God can act in such a way. Fallen humanity, how can I get even? Payback is tough. God doesn't think in those terms. Redeems us and forgives us totally, finally, forever. Forgiven. It's a great cure the guilt of our sin that we sometimes resurrect repeatedly. If God has let it go, let it go. Revel in pardon. The imagery here of that is captured in clouds. Uh, I'm not a meteorologist, not even the son of a meteorologist. Uh, but what little I know about clouds, uh, particularly the ones in Oklahoma, is they come and they, that's right, they go. Sometimes the Oklahoma sky is majestic clouds, and sometimes there's no clouds whatsoever, meaning that the liability of sin is going to evaporate just like clouds will be driven away by a mighty wind of the grace of God. This, this uh, imagery is uh, of the temporalness of clouds uh, by the way, is used in a very biting indictment of uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, uh, the minor uh, prophet uh, Hosea, uh, chapter 6 and verse 4, uh, your loyalty is like a morning cloud. I say that by way of reminder, be loyal to God, not like the morning clouds. Uh, have staying power, go the distance in light of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Uh, it means, of course, that the effect of our sin on our relationship with God has evaporated. A uh, great reminder of this, because uh, I think it comes to our greatest understanding in the New Testament. First uh, John chapter 1 and verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice the word all sin. If you're not like me, you sometimes think, gosh, I did something so terrible. There's just no forgiveness for that. No, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. If he only cleansed us from son's sins, none of us would ever be saved. And salvation would be impossible. He cleanses us from all sin. That's why the death of Christ upon the cross 
executes full pardon for everyone that he came to save. And he saved all of the sins of his people. None were left out. Cleanses us totally, finally, completely, irrevocably. And by the way, that's a motivation to serve him. Because Christ is a sacrifice of infinite value, there's a totality and finality of effect that we know in a single word, forgiveness. We're forgiven people. A perfect cause means a perfect effect. I was reading uh, a man who stands almost in the direct lineage of John Calvin at the city of Geneva, Francis Turretin. Perfect cause means perfect effect. You want to engage yourself as a servant of God, think upon those words. Christ was a perfect cause, and he rendered a perfect effect to totally cleanse you and to call you forgiven for all time. Very interesting to me that in many corners of Protestant theology and certainly in Roman Catholic theology, uh, that theology is... uh, not held, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, For example, in our own church, as you know, this used to be a Roman Catholic church, at the bottom of stained glass windows, reminder uh, to to pray for the dead. Uh, Because uh, the dead oftentimes are in purgatory because uh, full atonement hasn't been affected for their sin. And so they're still having to pay. Uh, And that's why we have to pray for the dead in Roman Catholic theology because uh, they haven't uh, got full pardon, haven't entered into the presence of God. They're in purgatory. So pray for the dead. I'm sorry. Uh, If that's your theology, I just encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. Christ offered himself one time for all time for the sins of his people. There is no further sacrifice that could be made. And quite frankly, any further sacrifice that is attempted is disrespectful to the fullness of the reality of what he did upon the cross, that he finished the work given to him by the Father for all time, and it's, it's effectual for all time because of the perfectness of who he was, the Son of God. It's total and final satisfaction of wrath, removal of guilt, and remission of sin. Full atonement. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Expressed everywhere, of course, in the New Testament. Uh, Look at history of the early church, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. Everyone who's believed in the name of Jesus has received the forgiveness of sins. Total, complete forgiveness for sins. And if that's not true, ladies and gentlemen, no one is ever saved, can be saved, because there's still liability before an eternal God. That's why some, of course, in the Protestant church, like the Roman Catholic or the Orthodox churches, hold that you can fall away from a state of grace. I hold otherwise because Christ finished the work to gather his people, to perfect them, to save them, and he dispatches his spirit to make it so. And the spirit, like the Son and like the Father, cannot fail, could not fail, 
and never forgets those whom the Son gave his life to ransom. If he could, he wouldn't be God. The majesty of that, I think, is coupled to our commissioning as the servants of God. Expressed in one of Paul's epistles, uh, you have your New Testaments, Colossians chapter 1, and verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the context is a prayer uh, for righteous conduct, verse 10, and this conduct includes the giving of thanks, verse 12. And we give thanks to God in light of everything he's done. Well, what has he done for us? Well, Paul's going to tell us. First, he has qualified us. Because the context here is a measure of real estate, uh, I perhaps stoke in your own minds uh, that event in which you went to the bank to uh, ask for a loan for an automobile or perhaps some real estate or perhaps for whatever reason you went. And you fill out mountains of paperwork and uh, a committee at some point decides whether you're qualified for the loan or not. You know, what, you know what God says of you because of Jesus Christ? You're qualified. You are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. I'm sure thankful there's not a committee in heaven that uh, had to meet and decide and vote on my qualifications. It was settled by Jesus Christ, qualifies us to share. These two words, share and inheritance, are real estate terms used in the Septuagint of partitioning the land. Now, of course, a parallel would be eternity. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says, I'm going to leave to go and prepare a place for you. My father's house, there are many mansions. Yeah, prepare it for you. He's, he qualifies us on the cross. The real estate is heaven, the mansions of God for his people. It's very interesting to me in, in our American culture because of, uh, of our, our measure of our economy. A number of years ago, we had a terrible uh, real estate crash uh, caused by the government uh, causing and asking banks to not do proper underwriting uh, but politicians can talk about the causes all they want to, but uh, the moment you tell a bank to throw away underwriting rules, you're going to set yourself for a bubble, and eventually the bubble popped, and there was a crash in real estate prices, and it uh, really dragged terribly on the American economy. Now enough of economics. My point is what? The assets of heaven are never stressed. The Federal Reserve doesn't ask God, uh, we're going to do a stress test, God, to see if your assets uh, can be delivered on if they're worthy. They last forever. They are eternal. They're accomplished by God. They are fixed in heaven, and there is certainty for the people of God. Almost makes you want to cut to the chase and go to heaven today. 
remember a great sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon. A lady died in the service, and there was great lament, and Spurgeon said something that I, I, wish, I, I wish I could have taken her place. Mind you, when I go to the funeral of a Christian, they beat me there. Grace of God. The assets of heaven are secure. Second, uh, Paul says he delivered us from the, the New American Standard reads domain of darkness. The word is literally authority. You were moved out from the authority of the prince of darkness. You were moved out from his authority. He no longer has authority over you as a Christian. Again, this verb is used in the Old Testament, deliverance from Egypt and Babylon. But third, he transferred us to be the kingdom into the kingdom as beloved son. There are three verbs here in the past tense. Qualified us, delivered us, and transferred us. You know Christ. All of those things have happened to you. Now let's shift to the present tense, verse 14. In whom we have. What do we have in light of the work of the Son of God for us? We have redemption and what? And what? The forgiveness of sins. All of them. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Our world is awash in guilt. Not so of the church of Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We have redemption the cause, the effect of forgiveness. That God has removed all and every liability. It's a timeless benefit that accrues to us in light of the work of Christ. The deliverance is total and the inheritance absolute. By the way, that is why Paul is provoking the church at Colossae to give thanks to God. In Isaiah, the barrier is removed and so God says to the nation, return to me. Salvation, of course, affects repentance. Uh, we can return because he has redeemed us. The way back to God is open because God has forgiven them. Turn from what? Their idolatry. If you're not a Christian, it's an invitation that goes to you. Turn from your idolatry in light of the work of Christ for his church. The reason is redemption and the restoration of purpose and relationship Namely, salvation affects change in the light of the redeemed. And so we've looked at uh, discovery of the original purpose, uh, forgiveness of idolatry, as you might well imagine what follows in our closing text, verse 23, is a summons to praise God. How could you not praise him in light of everything he's done for you? All that he is, all that he will be. Shout for joy because the Lord has done it, affected redemption. The language here is of the creation. Uh, shout for joy, O heavens, the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. It's interesting the mention of mountains and trees because you know where they were worshiping the idols? On mountains. You know what they were using to make the idols? Trees. Who made the mountains? God did. Who made the trees? God did. Who sustains all of it? God does. 
So if the creation is summons to praise, obviously he's gathering in the people of God, surrounded by the entire created order, praising God. In light of his redemption, uh, that we acknowledge uh, uh, his praise and worship. What I think the prophet is telling us is the progress that is the church. Uh, we have the greatest of all callings is the servants of God. Because of the greatest of all gifts, we're forgiven forever. It's not a license, but a recovery of who we are in Christ. And the greatest of all responses to praise of God. God saves us for a definite purpose, to serve him. He forgives us, gives us the greatest of all freedoms, and summons us to praise him in light of all that he has done and will do for us. Simply the theology of Isaiah chapter 44. There's a New Testament verse that I would like to close upon that I think perhaps in a measure summarizes the theology of Isaiah chapter 44 and the verses that we have just looked at. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I leave this with you in the worship of God who delivered us, Christ, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and who will deliver us because he has delivered us. The past bound up with the future and the future to the past. He's delivered you and he will deliver you. And to that end, let us praise God.